Welcome to Funny Old World, a podcast hosted by me, Juliet Kinsman, and Simon London. It's us sharing entertaining conversations which make it easier to better understand the causes, symptoms, and hopefully solutions to the climate emergency with a little much-needed laughter. Because there is a climate emergency. In each episode, we'll be discussing serious topical sustainability stories and chat to some of the world's most thought-provoking experts. And because, let's face it, Everyone's feeling a little sustainability fatigue, so we also need to know the facts. And goodness knows we need a little humour in our eco-anxiety-riddled lives. Juliet is a journalist and a sustainability expert, author and travel editor, and I'm a media pundit, but most importantly intellectually curious, which hopefully means I'll be asking questions that you, the listeners, want to know the answer to as much as I do. Each episode, we're going to tackle a complex topic, weigh up the trade-offs, and hopefully empower all to make better decisions when striving for impactability. These conversations were made possible by Weaver, a sustainability management system based on the framework of the long run. Go to weaver.earth to find out more. Okay. Hi, Juliet. Now, listen, at the end of the last episode, I was kind of being flippant and trying to make a joke and telling people that they should wash up their coffee cups. And in doing so, they could help save the planet. But you kind of shot me down in flames by saying it's actually generally better not to do that and to wash it by hand. Is that true? Or were you just sort of mucking around as well? Well, the global warming's got got us heating up enough. I don't want to be shooting anyone down with flames. All I'm ever doing is saying it's not necessarily a very simple, that's right, that's wrong situation with sustainability. So if you were washing up that cup by hand, you might use loads of water and it would have been more efficient to have a very full dishwasher, a new you know, eco-friendly dishwasher that is is full to the brim. It, it could use less energy on balance per item in there. You know what I'm saying. I think I know what you're saying. So uh, just to recap on that, if you are going to wash your coffee cup, look at your ecosystem on your dishwasher. Right. What are we talking about this episode? So, Simon, we really need to talk about carbon. OK, I thought we were going to get on to this at some point. Um, can you give us a quick carbon lesson, first of all? Well, can I give you a carbon lesson? Wow. OK, let me try and remember. Well, we know it's a chemical element um, and we know it's it's in lots of different things. It's in a purest form. It could be a diamond. But really, when we're talking about it in the context of climate change, uh, we're using that term carbon as shorthand for carbon dioxide, which is, of course, the guiltiest of the greenhouse gases, which are responsible for heating up this planet. So it's basically the emissions that are bad, the emissions that come from carbon. It's not carbon itself. Yes, it's the emissions we should be wagging our fingers at. Because if you think of a tree, think of a tree, okay, half of the weight of a tree, that's probably carbon. It's when we burn that bit of wood that it releases carbon emissions up into the atmosphere. But look, there are there are more, we're going to talk to actual scientists in a bit. Um, I think we should probably start from the very beginning. Right. A very good place to start. <laughs> Don't do the rest, because if you sing the rest of that, then we'll be into royalties. If, sound of music. Got if you. If we do the sound of music. Okay. So, yeah. OK. So take us back to the beginning then. Where are we going? Jurassic? Well, well no, no. We're going to go back to we're going to go back to 1760. 
Oh, right. Okay, good. So I am a slave. That's fun. And um, what am I doing? Oh, well, I mean, gosh, that's see, there's so many different aspects to this conversation. I'm taking you back to 1760 to reflect on the first Industrial Revolution, but reference to slavery, actually, um, just as George Monbiot referenced in the first uh, episode, I always think... It's quite a powerful reference because if we look at how people turned a blind eye to slavery or ignored it back when it was happening, it's the same as now, those turning a blind eye to the climate emergency. So it's actually a really poignant, poignant topic to reference. So basically, slavery and climate emergency are both huge injustices that affect us all and dehumanizes us all. I can draw a straight line from both. Is that yes, what you're saying? Yes, it's, it's true, actually. And there's a book called Climate Change is Racist, Race Privilege and the Struggle for Climate Justice. It's by Jeremy Williams. And some people, you know, might be uncomfortable or go, what? Climate change is racist? Why is the book called this? Actually, it's really, really important to understand that those who are, well, societies or nations guiltiest of causing these emissions that we're talking about, it's often those who suffer the consequences most. We talk about the global north and we talk about the global south. It's those on the front line who are often the ones who are uh you know it's it's the same imbalance the same inequity and the same uh, injustice as slavery okay so we've gone back to 7060 it's the start of the first industrial revolution in the uk and what's going on i'm going to keep firing questions at you so what do you think the world's population was around then at the end of the 18th century <laughs> so random um the number of people in the world i don't know a billion people a billion people in the world well actually there are only 800 million but do you know what our population is today okay another question um three four centuries ago no five centuries ago, um f- four billion actually um Eight billion. We're at eight billion. And um, your maths needs a bit of work there. (laughs) We're not quite that many centuries later. It's it's, it's a lot of people in a short amount of time. So let's move now to 1870. um, And we're, we're more powered by now by electricity, petrol. The second industrial revolution is happening. It's going at full throttle. It's motoring us into the 20th century. And an aspect then that's interesting, particularly to me as someone who who works in the travel sector, um, it starts giving people more disposable income. So you have more of society who have gone exploring around the world. And of course, you know, a lot of them are coming from the UK. And I think the impact of this era is perhaps why so many of us in the UK feel, uh, well, an extra responsibility or particularly motivated to, to really look at UK's polluting past and atone for that. So we're basically saying that from the first and second industrial revolution, that is the time that we are spewing all these uh, carbon emissions into the atmosphere, yeah? That's when we got going. That's when all those coal-powered factories got going, manufacturing. Okay, so that means that the UK had a huge carbon footprint at that time. And we touched on carbon footprint in an earlier episode, but that may be worth sort of going on again. But just before we do, you know, <laughs> it's a bit of a weird um, aside. Did you know that Quentin Tarantino has a foot fetish? <laughs> he does. So in every one of his films, there's always a close-up of feet and somebody on YouTube has gone and um, sort of spliced them all together so you can watch eight minutes of uh, Quentin Tarantino feet. But I do digress. Um, the carbon footprint. Just remind us what that is again. I, I love all your I love all your cultural references. Honestly, I'd rather imagine in my mind a montage of beautiful feet via Quentin Tarantino than talk about carbon accountancy sometimes. But yes, carbon footprint, as we know, a term invented by the oil and gas industry really to deflect responsibility from them onto individuals. Okay, but is that such a 
bad thing about putting the onus on the individual? Well, I mean, we de- certainly need awareness from I mean, we need change bottom up, but we definitely need big change top down. Because I just I asked that because back in the 80s, if you remember the 80s, Going back, you know, raw raw skirts. Um, the things that we were scared of most were AIDS and the ozone layer. I remember the ozone layer was a massive thing. We all knew about it. It was these um, CFCs that were in our fridges and mainly in our deodorants. Anybody who used an aerosol deodorant back then was sort of branded a kind of destroying the planet uh, because of this hole in the ozone layer that was above Australia and burning everybody. It was the hole in the ozone layer. Don't be scared of the ozone layer. Um, Yes, and you're right, because of course, because of lobbying, because of those chemicals being removed from all those products, we kind of dealt with it. But again, you see, that's it shows the interplay, doesn't it? It shows that the consumers making a lot of noise about it, and then actually mandating the removal of those chemicals. So it'd be very nice if people did actually mandate more when it came to carbon emissions and and didn't make all these big lofty promises that we hear at all these big climate conventions and people actually had to stick to things. Okay, so if there's one thing that you would want us to take away from this carbon episode, what would it be? Decarbonisation. Which is? Well, I mean, we need to remove all the the, the CO2 from the... all wrapping around the world. And we, we need to strive. You'll hear lots about net zero, the term net zero. Um, imagine, you know, back in the day, they talked about net CFCs and things like that. But, you know, we need to remove a lot more of the greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Um, and we need to transition to more of a net zero world. The funny thing is, okay, because I don't love buzzwords. I like specifics. If you look at the United Nations website, and you look at how many companies have actually, you know, committed to this net zero, you'll see that they only list about, well, 1,000 and something. 1,000 and something companies have committed to science-based targets. What, so 1,000 companies, is that a global figure? Yeah. <laughs> That's... How many how many companies do you reckon there are even in London? Should we ask our research department? Okay, well, there's got to be at least a million in London, but let's go to our, our research department, which is just you and <laughs> me on our, our machines. Um, so I'm going to go to Google right there. Don't use Google. You know how I feel about Google. What should I be using? You should be using Ecosia. It's a much more ethical search engine, which is, um, well, your search results will have less greenwash. And also they plant trees for every search. Okay. You see, we love to slip in all these nutritious little nuggets of helpful information in funny old world, don't we? I have a figure for you. The number of companies in the London region. Wait there, just remind us how many companies globally had signed up to this on the UN website. Well, at the moment I'm looking here, it's about 1,200. Okay, so then there are 2.6 million companies in London. Alone. Yeah, which is 29.3% of all the 8.9 million companies in the UK. So, so basically, I feel like I passed I passed a load of those just on the bus here. <laughs> so, um, so we're aiming for net zero. And at the moment, all around the world... Um, We've got 1,200 companies. So, look, it doesn't really matter. We're looking at all these numbers and figures. The point is we all need to reduce emissions, and that's being headlined as net zero. And so my problem with that term is it's like tasking everyone with 100%, getting 100% on a test. Um, We do need a net zero strategy. We need to transition to an electricity system that's more about renewable energies. We know all that. We need to move from extractivism to regeneration. Again, all these lovely buzzwords. But you've brought up this whole idea of all these businesses and you've looked at that. Should we talk to someone who actually works with the businesses to bring down their emissions? It seems like a sensible idea. 
So let's speak to Charlie Cotton, who works with businesses to actually measure the amount of emissions they're responsible for and help reduce that. Okay. Thank you. Well, I'm Charlie. I'm founder of E-Collective and I measure the carbon footprint of stuff. My job is typically uh, working with companies who have lots of intention, but haven't done much action when it comes to reducing their footprint. Uh, And typically that involves us on day one sitting down with a blank piece of paper. And that is our understanding of their carbon footprint. Over the course of however long it takes, turn that blank piece of paper into the total carbon footprint of a company. And the hope with that is then to work out how we can reduce it year on year in a way that makes sense for the customers, for the suppliers and for the business themselves. Um, Why we need to start taking action on it uh, is because we are in a climate crisis. Year on year, more and more uh, greenhouse gases are going into the atmosphere. So this is carbon going over. And someone recently described it and this uh, thing I was watching as like this kind of pollution blanket that's going over the world. And this blanket is warming the planet and we don't know how hot it's going to get because it all depends on our actions today and into the future. If we do nothing, it's probably going to get over to three degrees. We're probably best case scenario is 1.5. And using that earlier example of lots of intent, but not enough action, I'd probably say as of today, we're closer towards the three, maybe even higher. And so that's why there's a real need for everyone no matter how big or small your influence can be, we all have an influence and we all need to kind of make it push the world into what we need the world to become. Every every person and every business has a carbon footprint. Firstly, the one thing I'd make sure you do is not focus all of your attention in pointing the finger elsewhere. That's the most common thing. Jeff Bezos has a bigger footprint than me. Absolutely. China as a massive country has a big footprint, absolutely. But that is not what we need at the moment. We need us to just firstly look internally and make sure we practice what we preach. We don't have to be perfect. We just need small but consistent number of changes to how we live our lives or how we operate our business. In terms of things we can be start doing as of today, we need people to start learning the basics. I can start saying we can turn off your tumble dryer or cover less kind of air miles year on year or eat less meat. They are all absolutely true. But the beauty of finding ways that work are finding these things called co-benefits, things that you can change in your life that will reduce your footprint, but also bring a better additional benefit to you. So for me, a great example we're getting more and more and more is about insulating your homes or your offices so that they use less and less energy. The less energy it is, the smaller your bills. In terms of changes I think people should start doing, it would be eating more vegetables. Even better if we can make it seasonal, uh, because that'd be more nutritious for you at the same time. We need to focus more on reducing air miles. And it doesn't mean a complete cold turkey, but year on year, we more need to fly less. Uh, And you need to start thinking about which trips do you have the most impact on you? What which trips bring joy to your life? It's all about just finding things that work for you. And this is where it's quite tricky just to pick one or two things that everyone should do because everyone needs to look at themselves and think, what works for me? Whether it's at work and we we're talking to suppliers or anything like that, or in our personal lives when we're just going out our day-to-day lives, is asking 
what is the carbon footprint of this thing? Now, if you sell something, I would say the onus is on you to know the carbon footprint of that item. Don't worry, you don't have to spend the next three years doing a deep study with academics to try and work out what it is. You just need to understand roughly what is the headline act around it. Is it big, small, or somewhere in between? And the hope there is as a buyer, whether that's personal or as a business, you can start making better decisions year on year. Uh, so when you're at the shop and you're buying between two items and they're both the same price, they both taste exactly the same or they both bring the same amount of joy to your life, you can then pick the one that has the smaller carbon footprint. It also hopefully then sends a message to those people that they need to start worrying about this as a designer of that product that you're buying. How can I design this thing so that has a smaller and smaller carbon footprint year on year. And this is where it all starts to join rather nicely with the circular economy, because if companies are taking it the right way, they want to be quite, if I'm being cynical, the less moving parts in the product that they sell, the better. And a great example of that would be perhaps a, a venue where it's thinking about reducing its carbon footprint year on year, they'd make sure that they're using more and more renewable energy, having less waste and all the other things that go into your carbon footprint, which at the same time also reduce their costs. So year on year, I'm hoping that these companies get more and more business because they've got a smaller footprint, but they're also making a bigger profit margin because their costs are coming down and down and down because they're spending less on energy that they don't need because they're becoming more efficient. They're spending less money on waste. They're spending less money on things that don't bring joy to their customers. But it all starts off with that first question, what is the carbon footprint of this thing? And I'd really want to, I don't know if it's like a Britishishness thing of like, I feel awkward asking that question or I don't want to be that person, but please be that one because I am in so many calls where even if one customer asks it, it resonates with the whole business and people go, oh, you won't believe what someone asked today. And it's not looked down upon at all. If anything, it's just this first step of hopefully money towards these companies making a change of how they operate. And what I love about Charlie is he's actually at the coalface, or should we say solar panels, actually measuring the carbon footprint of everything. And I suppose it's obvious that businesses are going to need to be greener, but aren't we seeing that already with the car industry? I mean, we have electric cars now, hybrid cars, and that's being pushed down our throats that everybody's going to have an electric car by something like 2030 or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, it depends on where you are. Gosh, there's a lot of there's a lot of cars out there that will still be in circulation that aren't electric, which is kind of crazy. I mean, every sector, every industry needs to be you know, greener. I'm going to ask you another question. I know you love my little history lesson questions. Go for it. When do you think the first electric car was developed? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's always a trick. So I was going to say the 80s, but I'm going to go 10 years earlier, the 70s. Well, can you believe it was as long ago as 1890 in Iowa back in, in, in America? They had one, the electric car back then. So if I'd have said the 90s, I would have been, <laughs> I would have been right, just the 1890s. Uh, explain that. How did they have an electric car back in 1890? Well, I mean, if you think about it, they, you know, the technology was there, they invented it. Then, and we're going to talk about this in another episode, I guess they just didn't think they could monetize if something was running on electricity in the same way they could if they run it on gas. I'll be honest with you, if they had an electric car back in the 1890s, there's no excuse for them not being flying cars now. I was promised flying cars because of Blade Runner back in 1980, and I was promised <laughs> hoverboards uh, from Back to the Future back in the 1980s, and we haven't got that yet. I'm 
pretty I, angry about that. I completely agree. I completely think that every single because you know they always say science fiction is actually quite prescient and forecasts a lot. But yes, you're right. Why didn't I get here today to the studio on a hoverboard? So are electric cars the solution then? You know, with everything, we could do an entire podcast episode just on that topic. And I do know a little bit about electric cars. I have a, a quite a, you know, a fascination with the innovation that happens in, in, in the autom- automobile industry. But the point is, you know, when you look at them, there's still so many resources needed to make even what seems to be a much better greener car. I mean, we need all the rare mineral, all that plundering of the rare you know, earth minerals such as copper, cobalt, lithium. And, and, and we need to think about that and all the energy required to actually build the car. And depending on where that car was built, what's the national grid system? So you might have a car that looks really good, but hey, if it's made in China, where I think about 85% of their energy runs on coal, not so good. Of course, so they're putting the emissions back into the atmosphere to make this thing that is on the face of it, much, much greener. Um, carbon dioxide gets a really bad rap. I mean, you've been down on carbon dioxide pretty much all through <laughs> this episode. But it's not just carbon dioxide, is it? Methane, we hear people go on about methane all the time, which is why they're sort of saying methane comes from cow farts. Actually, it comes from cow burps, not so much the farts. Just wanted to sort of um, absolve the cows there who have been getting uh, a bad rap. But Methane is is responsible as well, isn't it? Oh, you're right. We're wagging our finger at carbon and cattle and oh, we need to just sort of break it all down. Look, greenhouse gases were a problem. And in terms of production of methane, there's lots of different perpetrators. Yes, the animal industry. Yes, uh, grazing of cattle. Also, the food industry in general. Think of all that food waste itself, that when it's decomposing, how much methane it's making, which is it's much, much more potent than, than CO2. So yes, methane is a serious problem problem. But you know, I am definitely not a scientist. I'm a communicator around sustainability. Do we, should we speak to someone who, who knows a bit more about this? It's almost like we have one waiting in the wings, <laughs> um, which we do. Angela Terry is an environmental scientist with more than 25 years experience in renewable clean energy. And she's kindly agreed to talk to us about this now. So let's get her on the line. Hello, Simon. Hi, Juliet. Hi. I'm really excited to talk to you because so often people will say to me, you know, they just shrug their shoulders and say, well, clearly we just need to transition to green energy. That will solve everything, they'll often say. What do you think about that? So we absolutely have to transition as fast as possible away from polluting fossil fuels to clean, green, renewable energy. Um, And that is absolutely the case. Currently, we've got about 80% of our energy worldwide is still from fossil fuels. So that's coal, oil and gas. So that is why the focus is often on energy, because it is the the cornerstone of everything that we need to be doing, basically. So how we travel, uh, how we heat our homes, how we power our economy. But the other aspect is that we're also sort of losing all our biodiversity through the way we have farmed and through the way we are urbanising lots of the countryside. So there is an absolute essential need to let nature repair itself and also to offset some of the emissions that we can't yet solve. So we can solve a lot of it through wind farms, through solar panels, through energy efficiency and insulation and electric cars, these sorts of solutions, clean tech. But if we want to carry on, for example, having dairy farms, then those cows are going to keep on burping out methane. And so we need something to offset those so that we can still reach net zero. And that is where 
trees and nature have a real role to play. There's so much there that you've referenced I'd love to come back to. I'm going to ask you a few questions. What's impeding the transition to green energy? Can you explain also sort of the role of biodiversity? What does that mean to somebody who might just think, I hear this word, but I don't know what it means. And also, thank you for mentioning the uh, cows burping. Actually, Simon Simon says he doesn't know anything about, about sustainability. He obviously does. He did mention that to me. I've been telling people it's not farts, it's burps. And thank exactly. you. Thank you for proving me right <laughs> i'm glad that's the first issue we resolved <laughs> so we're on to a winner today so yeah so in terms of biodiversity all it means really is our wildlife is it rich or ha- are we just have we got lots of monocultures so so basically we know that nature has millions and billions of plants and species and we've hardly captured the benefits of any of those and a really simple way to explain it is the bees so basically the bees are dying out because of the pesticides we're using because of climate change it being too hot not enough water not enough um, flowers for them to pollinate and so without pollinators then it's really hard for us to grow food and it's really hard for say apple trees to be uh, thriving so so it seems biodiversity is a word I try and avoid to be honest Uh, like sustainability I kind of hate the word sustainability (laughs) yeah like sustainability people understand wildlife they understand nature they understand you know bees and the birds and uh, especially since lockdown people have really started to appreciate the world around them like how do we make people care more about nature and feel feel themselves that their role can be in helping boost biodiversity and nature and wildlife? That's a great question because I think the thing is people do care. They really do care. And, and that's been sort of a miss. You asked me why the transition hasn't happened the way it should, given what's at stake, i.e. the future of all of us. And it's because there have been a lot of purposeful, well-funded campaigns to put misinformation out there um, and and so people really do care and so when you see the polling from whoever polls everyone cares about climate change they're aware it's harming us already you know we've seen the droughts this summer we've seen the storms at the beginning of the year let alone what's going around the world like in terms of the hurricanes and the wildfires so people are aware and people instinctively want to save the bees. I think it was Friends of the Earth's most effective popular campaign they've ever run. So so, so it's not that people don't care. The bit that's missing is what they can do about it. And that's where things like this podcast are so useful because it gives people the information so they feel they know what to do and that it has an impact, that it's not a waste of time. Um, and that's why getting the information out there is so important. Being somebody who's wanting to sort of transition to a more sustainable lifestyle and sort of asking all these questions that I'm asking at the moment, I'm really aware that sometimes the pushback from other people are, well, you say you want to do this, but look at you, you do that. And I always liken it to vegetarians who are always told, oh, you say you're a vegetarian, but you've got leather shoes or you've got a leather belt. How do you sort of counter that? What advice would you give to counter for people who are trying to catch you out all the time? We can't not burn fossil fuels at the moment. So everyone has a carbon footprint. So you can point the figure at everyone. But if that was a reason to stop us doing it, we'd do nothing. And the key thing I do is talk about the benefits. So they save me money. They feel nicer. Uh, you know, it's cheaper. It's it's healthier. I, I like cycling on my bike. I, I j- overtake cars. Gives me a great pleasure overtaking the cars. You know, there's all reasons why we want to do these things. 
and and the carbon footprint thing is 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 the added benefit basically is the top one percent income earners around the world produce 10 percent of all the carbon pollution so the wow. greenhouse gases that are causing climate change but the 50% of the lowest income people around the world only produce 10%. So it's a huge disparity. Basically, if you're one of the Kardashians or Jeff Bezos flying around the world in your private jet and your private yachts, your carbon footprint is astronomical. It, and most of that comes from these elaborate travel regimes that they have. Um, and if you're just literally growing food in your local area and you're not traveling anywhere, um, and you've mainly got a plant-based diet because you can't afford the meat, uh, and you're not going to the shops buying something every month because you deserve it, because you just don't have that sort of disposable income, then you, your carbon footprint is tiny. Yet we, what we know is that the, the impacts are being felt the hardest in, in developing countries. Uh, say, for example, Bangladesh, it is a low-lying state, and sea level rise is happening at pace because of global warming. And so there are lots of places where migration is going to have to happen because it just, they will have permanent inundation from the sea. One last question, Angela. What do we mean by the term carbon sequestration? So carbon sequestration, it basically means taking carbon and locking it away. So so we release carbon every time we burn fossil fuels, carbon dioxide, but through photosynthesis, we take carbon dioxide out as the trees grow, basically. And so when the trees are growing from a little sapling, they're absorbing carbon every year, um, particularly in the summer months when they're growing fastest, and that carbon is then stored in those trees so instead of being in the atmosphere it's taken out of the atmosphere so that's why it helps reduce global warming because it reduces the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere so when the sun's rays come through the atmosphere less heat is absorbed basically so that's why it's a good thing and trees are wonderful as long as we plant the right trees in the right place basically so it's really important in our enthusiasm and love for all tree planting uh, that we do actually plant them so they're actually going to still be alive in a hundred years time um, and so the other thing is that sometimes we have um uh, commercial forestry, but even that is better than using the plastic equivalent. So I always say to people, if you've got a choice between a wooden set of garden furniture and a metal or a plastic, always choose the wooden one, basically, because we have Forest Stewardship Council, you know, to make sure that we're using sustainable forestry products, basically, because that carbon's still in those wooden tables um, as well. So, so it's a real good thing to be using. Wood is good, basically, is the I phrase. I love that. Thank you. That's a great tip. Wood is good, Simon. Excellent. Thank you so much, Angela, uh, for lots of things there, mainly uh, so many lessons uh, also for, um, and it's a selfish thing, for uh, confirming my cow burping uh, fact, which is if if people take one thing away from this, on my side, it's the cow burping facts on Juliet's is that we need to decarbonise. But thanks so much, Angela. My pleasure, Simon and Juliet. Thank Cheers. you. Thanks a lot. So what I've learned from this episode is basically carbon is everywhere because it's an element and it's in things, but it's the emissions that are important to us along with methane. And most importantly, if you're not realising the effect those emissions have and also the bigger picture, then we can't act positively to reduce our carbon footprints. So it's about recognising that 
everything we do has an effect and then acting accordingly though but it just feels so massive because the whole thing is so huge you can say from your pet to traveling on a plane it's just so huge the the whole thing yeah i haven't even touched upon the fact that one of the greatest ways to tackle uh carbon emissions is to educate young girls in remote rural areas because if you do that they get married later in life they have fewer healthier children they contribute better to the economy they're better equipped to deal with the climate emergency the point i'm making is it's all so interconnected it's a huge puzzle and each topic is just one part of the puzzle and people can't be blamed for finding this climate emergency discussion overwhelming what we just want to emphasize is we need to measure everything. We need to measure carbon, we need to measure negative impact, we need to measure positive impact, and then we can mitigate. Oh, I've loved this episode, and I'm looking forward to the next episode where uh, we're going to be tackling waste, I believe. Yep, we're going to be talking rubbish. So no change there. I bet you're going to tell me that's a bad thing now, me opening this can of drink. You know, that's so funny, isn't it? I've looked it up, the uh, the actual emissions from that, something like 0.001% of emissions are caused by carbonated drinks. So don't worry too much, but what we are going to focus on is that actual can. Where's it going? 